Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. This week's topic is one that I really, really, really love, and one that isn't really often thought of as a paranormal or fringe topic, because it hasn't been taken seriously for like 400 years. But it is a very interesting one to talk and learn about, and one that is probably one of the most direct lines over to a modern-day science that one can get. I'm talking about alchemy, the ancient art of obtaining magical or medicinal compounds from seemingly normal starting materials, the path towards enlightenment and everlasting life, and the quest for the Philosopher's Stone. This episode in particular has been on the back burner for a while, and probably wouldn't have come out so soon if not for the support and suggestion of my friend TJ and his wife Erin, who just had a brand new baby. Congratulations, guys. I wish you both success with a new young one, who I'm sure will grow up to be a wonderful aficionado of the strange and mysterious as well. TJ is the host of the Pints and Puzzles podcast, a really great show that you should all take a listen to as well. We've been sharing ideas and helping each other out throughout this podcast adventure, and he is in fact the reason my new audio sounds so much better than the earlier stuff, thanks to a pretty sweet microphone he sent my way. The Mad Scientist podcast also has some interesting updates this week. Number one, I've opened up a Patreon page in an attempt to be able to pay for more bandwidth per month to create longer episodes, as well as venture into YouTube and live chats and all kinds of other cool stuff, including merchandise for the show. So if you enjoy listening and want more content and a shirt or sticker with the logo on it, please think about contributing even as little as $1 a month. My hope is to use this as a way to fund the show in lieu of advertisers. And as such, if you donate, you'll get a shout out. Another update is the inclusion of some different music at the end of the show, showcasing a different band each episode with great music. These are bands that you won't hear on the radio and maybe haven't heard of, who have either just recorded their first EP or are touring around trying to make a name for themselves. So if you like music, be sure to stick around at the end of each new episode. And if you want your music featured, please send me an email. As I mentioned earlier, alchemy isn't really something that we take very seriously anymore in the Western world. There aren't shows on cable TV about the continued quest for the alchemist's secrets, or people on eBay selling do-it-yourself alchemy kits. But to think that alchemy isn't still floating around out there in a clever disguise, ready to trick your grandmother into buying herbal supplements that boost her immune system, or get your friends to pay triple price for oatmeal that contains a special type of antioxidant to lower fat deposits, or that since something is natural and free of toxins produced through chemistry, that it must be healthier for you than the exact same product produced in a factory. I'm not railing against farm-raised or small-batch foods here, or trying to convince you that these things aren't in many ways better for the environment, tastier, and better for your health. But our fear of chemicals, our fear of chemistry itself and modern medicine, I think in many ways comes from our leftover magical thinking that is rooted in alchemy and herbal healing folklore. We believe that the place where a thing came from and the normative moral properties we ascribe to the pieces or processes used to make a thing, must in some way also affect the normative moral judgments or overall goodness or badness of the final product. The perfect example of this is the way we look at food, something that we'll end up talking a lot about in this episode. Another huge place where alchemy seems to continue to hold some sway is in the pharmaceutical and healthcare fields and in particular in the ridiculous and dangerous field of supplements. And at the same time, in some places of the world, we have alchemical beliefs that are not all that dissimilar to what we in the West still hold true, 
but which in other places we hold in disdain or think are silly kind of folkloric kind of things. The Chinese market for herbal remedies and supplements, most famously obtained from ground-up rhino horn, has become a huge cause of the poaching of these animals. And as a person who loves animals, I think this is appalling. But to act like their belief in this herbal or alchemical remedy is any less silly than our own sorts of ideas is, well, silly. So this episode comes from some recent work I've been doing with the Astonishing Legends podcast. Again, those guys are phenomenal, so please check out their show. Anyways, we were looking at some weird deaths for an upcoming episode, and the questions I was trying to at least get some answer to were things like, well, were certain listed causes of death or explanations for weird things plausible? What is the statistical likelihood of a certain thing happening? You know, sciencey stuff. Anyways, the conversation turned to herbal supplements for a case that I am not going to spoil, but which is insanely cool and you need to hear about from Scott and Forrest. And specifically, we were talking a little bit about non-traditional herbal or slightly magical ways to cure cancer. I don't know what it is about cancer. Maybe it's because of its deathly pallor, the depressed and scared feelings that even saying the word seems to bring to a conversation. The almost mythical image it has in the popular view is a death sentence, not to mention the fact that it is often a very prolonged and horrible way to die. Or maybe it's because it's one of those diseases that we still have not been able to adequately treat or cure as a society. Regardless, cancer has been one of these illnesses that has spawned a huge amount of fake cures, with things from magical crystals to electromagnetic waves to strange diets purporting to cure even terminal cases of cancers. And it struck me that, really, our modern use of herbal supplements or crystals or whatever isn't all that far removed from the days of alchemy and medicine men, when the women who knew about herbal cures for various ailments were sometimes beloved and at other times scorned as witches. These ideas have really stuck around, and so I thought that an episode on alchemy would not be that out of place, although it's a topic that I've been trying to fit into this show for a little while, and probably one of my personal favorite magical topics. This episode, I'll dive into the history of alchemy, what it really taught and what its goals were, and talk about some of the famous alchemists and how their beliefs, in some cases, contributed to the way that we look at the modern world. We'll also talk about how alchemy contributed to and morphed into what we now consider to be the field of chemistry. And we'll talk about how alchemy isn't as dead as many of us think, and look at some of the most interesting cases of modern snake oil salesmen this side of the home shopping network. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast! Today's episode, Alchemy! When I say alchemy, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It's Harry Potter, right? It's always Harry Potter. But really... Alchemy and alchemical thinking was a surprisingly big part of a lot of childhood memories, at least for me. Some of the best TV shows and cartoon fighting squads and video games broke their worlds up into separate archetypes, with main characters representing some portion of the good aspects of the world, and evil characters representing some portion of the bad. And more often than not, these archetypes were represented by an element or color, which gave you the general breakdown of the characters 
and who or what they were supposed to clash with, who they worked well with, whatever. So the character with the aggressive attitude who didn't think things through, that guy was always represented by fire, and he had a red uniform or badge or zord or something. The character with the smarts, they were water or blue, and were usually the best characters, at least according to this totally not biased blue Power Ranger. The person who was the strongest, who was the best to their friends, they were yellow or wind. Even Harry Potter is explicit in this archetypal representation, with the four houses and four colors that they represent, with their singular category as well. I mean, is it a coincidence that both Power Rangers and Harry Potter chose green for the character that is once evil but comes to be redeemed? Probably, especially considering Power Rangers was mishmashed together from a totally separate Japanese show for American audiences. But maybe that's a topic for a different episode. (laughs) This categorization of the world and its pieces into smaller parts isn't at all new to our time period. And in the last episode, we talked a little bit about this in the formation of the periodic table and how the ancient philosophers, and especially Democritus, had this idea of fundamental parts of a given object. And a lot of philosophy was based around the hunt for this fundamental part, this piece that gave a thing the properties of itself and made it specific to its own thing and not just part of a whole slew of other things. And this gets especially important when we start to talk about the representation of objects in our minds. For example, what makes this chair that I'm sitting in right now, this particular chair, as opposed to, say, a representative of all other chairs? Other chairs have four legs, are made of wood, and have a huge number of the same properties of this specific chair. But other things can also have these properties, right? I mean, dogs have four legs, but they're not chairs. And trees are made of wood, but those aren't chairs. So when I'm talking about or thinking of a chair, am I thinking in particulars, or am I thinking in universals? And what is it about a chair that makes it similar to all other chairs, so that I can pick out a chair from a lineup of other objects? What is this fundamental chairness that separates a chair from a table, for example? This problem is known as the problem of universals and is easily one of the most fundamental issues in philosophy still to this day, although it's a little hard to explain to someone why that's really an issue, I guess. The separation between concrete, real objects, and the thought objects that are used in our minds and in our language, is a super interesting one, and one that I can't possibly cover in this particular episode. But if it's of interest, I can definitely do an episode on this in the future. Anyways, the alchemist sort of took this idea of categorization and started looking at the natural world. Clearly, the objects in nature are particulars, but at the same time, they seem to have common elements to them. And when we start to decompose physical things, we find that in fact, they are made up of a number of pieces that can be separated out. So, for example, when I look at a chunk of rock, I can do all kinds of chemical transformations to this thing to break it up into its constitutive metals or ceramics. And eventually, if I keep doing this process, I find that there's nothing else to separate. I've come to a seemingly fundamental piece of nature. Well then, what are the properties of this fundamental piece? And how do I know that this piece is the fundamental portion, really? The alchemist took this idea and sort of ran with it, arguing that, well, if we could come to the fundamental piece of the universe, then in theory we must be getting towards more and more perfect objects, right? 
And this final perfect object, this final perfect form, was thought to have all kinds of very special properties. Maybe it could cure all ailments. Maybe it could allow us to live forever. Maybe it could transform other basic or less perfect objects into a truly perfect form just like itself. Even more interesting was how the alchemists believed that this could be utilized not only for the physical body, but also for the soul of the individual. If we could perfect and form the most perfect fundamental piece of the physical world, then could we not in theory also form the most perfect piece of the spiritual world as well, by refining and tuning our soul in some way? Alright, I'm getting ahead of myself here, so let's back up and talk about the roots of alchemy and its history. For this episode, I'm going to focus on Western alchemy as well. Although there was a flourishing and important alchemical world in modern-day India, modern-day China, and throughout the Islamic world, that becomes closely related to the Western alchemical school, thanks to the conquering of Istanbul, and large amounts of mixing between the Greek, Roman, and Egyptian cultures. From this mixing comes the idea of the human hero god, Hermes Trismegistus, or Thrice Great, who was supposedly both a man and an embodiment of the Egyptian god Thoth, or the Greek version Hermes. From Hermes we get the Hermetic Philosophies, which was codified in the Hermetica, a book of collected knowledge supposedly passed down by Hermes to his disciples. This book itself is written in the form mostly of dialogues, where Hermes is giving lectures through discussion with one of his students, in a similar way to the Socratic dialogues. And that's no coincidence either since alchemy borrows a lot from the thinking of Socrates, Plato, and especially Aristotle. In fact, Aristotle is thought to have taken the thinking of Empedocles and refining it into the notion that the universe is composed of the four principal elements of earth, air, water, and fire, something that underpinned the entire alchemical way of thinking about nature and the world. This idea of the elements is described by Hermes in the following way. Quote, An Isis answer made, of living things my son, some are made friends with fire, and some with water, some with air, and some with earth, and some with two or three of these, and some with all. And, on the contrary, again some are made enemies of fire, and some of water, some of earth, and some of air, and some of two of them, and some of three, and some of all. For instance, son, the locust and all flies flee fire. The eagle and the hawk and all high-flying birds flee water. Fish, air, and earth. The snake avoids the open air. Whereas snakes and all creeping things love earth, all swimming things love water, winged things air, of which they are the citizens. While those that fly still higher love the fire and have the habitat near it. Not that some of the animals as well do not love fire. For instance, salamanders, for they even have their homes in it. It is because one or another of the elements doth form their body's outer envelope. Each soul, accordingly, while it is in its body, is weighted and constricted by these four. End quote. This idea that everything has some inner soul or element that represents it is thus very important to the early alchemists, and early science in general. What we know of the early alchemists, though, is somewhat light, frankly. The early alchemists are primarily known by their pseudonyms, using the names of Greek or Egyptian gods in their works. And most of what we know of their worldview and works comes from the translation of the original works into Arabic thanks to the Muslim alchemists. They also dealt primarily with metaphysics and the spirit, 
as opposed to what we would today consider to be alchemy or early versions of science. Some of the most fundamental ideas of alchemy come from these early teachings, however, and I'm going to run through some of them now to make later stuff easier to follow. First, the alchemists believed, quote, as is above, so is below, end quote. In other words, they felt that the spiritual and physical world were connected. They thought that to obtain enlightenment was to obtain the Philosopher's Stone, so the quest was both literal and spiritual. This meant as well that the heavenly bodies of the planets had representations here on Earth, which were the basic metals known to the Greeks, Romans, and Egyptians, and that astrology could also affect the physical world in some way. Another important idea to the alchemists was that their work should be kept secret to the unworthy, utilizing fake names to protect themselves and their works from those with greedy or less than good intentions. This also meant that to transfer their knowledge, they needed to take on apprentices and use code and writing, and so they kept their writings and ideas hidden behind symbolism and allegory. This gets more important later on in the episode, but basically the Philosopher's Stone quest itself is to some not taken literally, but rather as a symbolic way to represent the quest for enlightenment. For example, when Theodore Henry de Schulde talks about this quest in his book Alchemical Catechism from 1776, he includes the following passage. Quote, Question. When the philosophers speak of gold and silver, from which they extract their matter, are we to suppose that they refer to the vulgar gold and silver? Answer. By no means. Vulgar silver and gold are dead, while those of the philosophers are full of life. End quote. Other famous symbols of the alchemists are things like the phoenix, who is said to rise from the ashes in a new form representing eternal life, as well as the conversion of base materials into pure spiritual perfection, and the wyvern, a non-flying dragon which is often shown eating its own tail to represent the concept of infinity. The wyvern in particular is thought to represent the more basic animal side of nature, that which the alchemists were attempting to defeat in their quest for enlightenment. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Anyways, early alchemy was metaphysics-based, and we don't know a lot about it due to much of this work being destroyed over the course of time. It wasn't until the work of Jabir ibn Hayyan, known in the Western world as Geber, that we start getting to what we would now think of when we think of alchemy. Geber really helped start chemistry, and he is thought of as the father of modern chemistry still. I especially like the following quote from him. Quote, The first essential in chemistry is that thou shouldest perform practical work and conduct experiments. For he who performs not practical work, nor makes experiments, 
will never attain to the least degree of mastery. End quote. I like this quote because it's kind of funny considering he is most widely remembered for searching for Takwin or the means for the artificial creation of life. <laughs> now, he also helped discover hydrochloric, sulfuric, and nitric acid. And most important to alchemy, made the discovery that a mix of hydrochloric and nitric acid, a mixture they called aqua regia, could dissolve gold. Kibert also really started the hunt for the Philosopher's Stone in earnest. Going off the idea that everything was composed of some mixture of the four primary qualities, based off of the elements that Aristotle helped define, he broke things up into their hotness, coldness, dryness, and moistness. Doing this, he attempted to determine which qualities constituted the basic metals, which at the time were lead, mercury, tin, iron, copper, silver, and gold. By then knowing which of the qualities made up each element, he reasoned that it should be possible to combine qualities into each different ratio to create some other metal, thereby transmuting them. Importantly, though, these metals were arranged in their order from most base or impure to most pure and perfect, with the metals going lead is most base, then mercury, then tin, iron, copper, silver, and the most perfect metal being gold. And it was thought then that gold represented something extremely close to the heavens, something perfect and immutable on the earth, since it appeared not to be destroyed or altered by the chemical or physical means we had available at the time, and also seemed to be everlasting. Gold doesn't rust, right? Whereas those other metals as they were constituted back then could be seen to degrade with time. This was what made aqua regia so important, by the way. The fact that you could seemingly dissolve this most perfect substance meant that you could potentially use it to create something else that was also perfect. And since gold was pure, then wouldn't anything made from gold also be closer to purity and perfection? At the same time, wouldn't this hunt for purity, represented by the transmutation of the base metals into the noble metals, also be instructive to the purification of the soul? This is part of that metaphysics stuff we talked about earlier, but the alchemists ultimately believed that the transmutation of the metals represented this change of the soul of the one doing the transmutation, with each step only becoming possible when the alchemist was pure in mind and body, and ready to become more in tune or balanced with the elements that composed everything. Interestingly, then, at the end of the hunt for the Philosopher's Stone, would you even want to use it? you'd have achieved balance, and in theory come to some sort of perfectly contented, balanced state, right? In this way, the hunt for the Philosopher's Stone is both an allegory on its own right, as well as a real physical hunt for a pure substance. So if you wanted the stone for its ability to produce gold, or everlasting life, you likely would never be able to actually produce it. However, if you were looking for knowledge and spiritual enlightenment for its own sake, the hunt for the stone would, in theory, have become much easier for you. It's kind of an interesting parable. So, Geber and the Islamic alchemists really brought out alchemy into what is close to a modern form of science. With the use of a hypothesis and the controls and variables and all that kind of stuff, as well as the invention and perfection of multiple techniques and separation processes that are absolutely essential to modern-day chemistry and engineering. By separations here, what I mean is the removal of one substance 
from a mixture of other substances. So, for instance, distillation to achieve pure ethanol from a water-ethanol mixture, or to obtain some solid metal from a metal slag ceramic kind of slurry at high temperatures. And not all of the Islamic chemists were alchemists, with many of them actually disputing and calling into question the metaphysical things that Gay Bear and others were talking about while doing their alchemy kind of stuff. By the time of the Renaissance, alchemy had moved back towards Europe as its center. It was around this time that Paracelsus started perfecting the foundation of modern medicine, with the use of chemistry and alchemical practices to create items to cure ailments. This is where the idea of the Philosopher's Stone as a means to curing ills comes from, this time where it was again thought that if disease or sickness was a form of impurity of the soul, then that most pure substance, the Philosopher's Stone, should be able to cure these impurities and remove disease. Paracelsus believed that sickness came from an imbalance of the core elements of the human soul, and so by correcting this imbalance through alchemy and different kinds of spiritual-slash-herbal means— one could cure whatever was ailing you. It was from this time as well that we get a whole bunch of really amazing alchemical art, allegory, and legends. Most alchemists wrote their knowledge in allegories and poetics, making them hard to decipher without some outside knowledge of what exactly it is that they mean. And at other times, they utilized art that showed images known clearly to the initiate. But some basic ideas were fundamental to the field, and can be seen in a whole bunch of alchemical art once one knows what to look for. One of these is the idea of the Ouroboros, or the two-headed snake devouring itself. This represented infinity, the everlasting quality of the soul and the elements, and also brought out that fundamental idea to alchemy, that represented by the saying, as is above, so is below. This idea states that the spiritual or heavenly sphere could be attained or altered by the workings and doings of the earthly sphere, right? Another common motif is that of the magnum opus, or the hunt for the philosopher's stone. This was represented by stages of work that went into transforming the prima materia, or basic material of the universe, into the perfect heavenly material, represented by the philosopher's stone. And these stages are negredo, or blackening, albedo, or whitening, citronitis, or yellowing, and rubido, or reddening. These stages can be thought of in some ways as representing the changes in color that were expected of the base material when becoming the Philosopher's Stone, showing that one was on the right path chemically. These are often represented in art or allegory as a series of birds, with a black raven, white swan, young phoenix, and adult phoenix representing the changes in color on the way to perfection. Another way to often see this is one animal will eat another. So, a black rabbit is eaten by a white boar, which is eaten by a yellow wyvern, which is eaten by a red phoenix. And over time, these stages can be represented by true chemical procedures, with a number of different recipes to obtain the Philosopher's Stone coming out around the time of the Renaissance and late medieval period. But again, to the early alchemists, this was almost a misunderstanding of what they were trying to achieve. The hunt for the Philosopher's Stone was spiritual as well as physical. Because to the alchemists, both the physical and heavenly spheres were connected. But the use of the stone was thought of as almost grotesque. For when a true alchemist achieved enlightenment, 
they would no longer want to use it. One other big motif is the representation of the base metals with planets. So gold was always represented by the sun, silver by the moon, mercury with, you guessed it, mercury, Venus with copper, Mars with iron, Jupiter with tin, and Saturn with lead. Often in allegorical paintings, we'll see a human form with the sun or moon for a head, with smaller planets beneath represented by humans, with the alchemical symbols for the planets shown on their bodies somehow. So like, they'll be waving a flag with the symbol for Mars or something. And finally, one of the most common motifs is that of the scientist or alchemist on the hunt. So you'll see someone looking, you know, with like a bent over back and a cane, traveling a long path. And this represented the hunt for the Philosopher's Stone. Alchemy ultimately died out with the beginning of the modern scientific method, thanks to Bacon, who himself was also an alchemist. Over time, the metaphysics and spiritualism completely died out. But the chemistry, biology, and physics work done by the alchemists cannot be overstated. They really began our modern science. And if it weren't for the Islamic alchemists in particular, we likely would have lost a huge amount of our knowledge and abilities in the West with the advent of the Dark Ages. And alchemical ideas continue in the modern world. This idea that the physical and spiritual are connected somehow is extremely popular today. With medical cures and self-help books, touting that if your mind is calm, or you project happiness or health, that you will in fact be happy and healthy. Other leftover alchemical ideas are things like the provenance of a thing, or where it comes from or how it's made, is extremely important to whether or not it will be good or bad for you. This also kind of ties into the idea that the spiritual and the physical are connected. So if something is good or bad, it means literally that it is good or bad, like it is evil or good. And if something is evil or impure, then it must hurt your body when you take it in. For example, when looking at foods or things, people always seem to talk about contaminants or toxins. Some unknowable and undefined bad portion that seems to be absolutely necessary to remove from your body and your life if you are to be happy. I mean, food that is absolutely the same chemically to other sorts of food are considered less healthy because they've been genetically altered to be more resistant to the cold or certain bugs. Or things that contain chemicals, as if everything isn't already made out of chemicals, are considered toxic and destructive to our bodies. One of my favorites about this that just drives me absolutely crazy is when people say something like, well, this is made with the same chemical that's found in urine, and you want to take it into your body? Like, 95% of urine is water? So in that way of thinking, humans need a chemical found in urine to survive. I mean, you can make anything sound scary if you try hard enough. This trick was proven by Penn & Teller on their show Bullshit. They used to run on Showtime, I think, where they did a survey of people asking if they wanted to ban dihydrogen monoxide, a chemically correct way to label the molecule we know as water. The petition they had people sign basically said that dihydrogen monoxide in high enough doses could kill humans, causing their cells to literally burst open. Furthermore, it said that this dangerous industrial chemical was now found in almost all of our food and beverages, and that it was an easy place for bacteria and disease to fester. It worked surprisingly well, 
with a load of people signing that petition to ban water. And it isn't hard to do this sort of PR work to scare people. Again, using water as our example, let's make some things sound way worse than they are. I mean, did you know that due to runoff from factories, the oceans are being filled with chemicals contained in urine? So that's true, but I'm talking about water. Did you know that a chemical created by bacterial excretions are found in all alcoholic beverages, and that the FDA has done nothing to stop this? This time, I'm talking about ethanol, the stuff that makes alcohol fun to drink in the first place. And did you know that every day you are exposed to high levels of a type of radiation that has been shown to cause tumors and cancer? Yep, the sun sure is dangerous. My point here is, don't take every alarmist thing about chemicals you hear is true. Like, obviously, there are some very dangerous things out there, but the blanket term chemicals don't really adequately describe those scary things. Probably the biggest source of this kind of fooey is the herbal supplement or alternative medicine crowd. I cannot state strongly enough how absolutely stupid and bad for you alternative medicine can be. It's fine if you're doing it in conjunction with modern medicine, I guess. To each their own. But for the love of God, don't deny yourself medical care because you think you'd be better off using a magic crystal or taking a daily dose of garlic powder or that you can pray the cancer away. Just take it from the people who've studied this kind of stuff that it doesn't work. And try to make your doctor's appointments, please. I think one of the most horrifying versions of this has to be what is known as black salve, used to treat cancerous tumors of the skin and outer parts of the body. This stuff is often sold as consema, and basically what it is is a topical paste that literally burns your skin off, creating an escar or area of dead, blackened skin where it was applied. This stuff has been known of for ages, but the first reported use of this to treat cancer is from a 1955 article in Time magazine, where the following is stated, quote, A 37-year-old housewife had a skin condition that later, at Duke, proved not to be a cancer. Convinced that it was, she had gone to a backwoods healer who applied a salve. Soon, a quarter-sized hole disfigured her nose, opened up the nasal cavity. Duke's plastic surgeons had to build her a new nose, end quote. And this stuff is still used today. I mean, basically, the exact same thing is reported in that article from 1955 was terrifyingly reported in an herbal remedy slash alternative medicine forum by a woman not too long ago. Just Google black salve treatment for the scary pictures, but they are not for the faint of heart. Crazily, these herbal treatments are not regulated or stopped by the FDA. And so long as you have a nice little sticker on your bottle that says not for use to treat or cure any disease, you're pretty much all good legally. That's it for this week's episode, which I hope you've enjoyed. I'll be back towards the end of the month with a more personal episode, which I'm tentatively titling Stuff My Family Actually Believes, just in time for the holiday season which will discuss some of the funny family history, weird alternative medicines, and just all-around crazy stuff 
Some of the people that I see around the Christmas table believe or have tried. My logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, and my listeners can find me all over the web as the Mad Scientist Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.